So this morning I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's just a, to me it's a wonderful, wonderful, very long chapter. We're, we're, not, we're only going to look at two verses out of it. I'll, I'll start at the first verse. But it's a definition, a declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And within the context of the gospel, of the good news, of those things that we need to know to be in right relationship with God, uh, we have in part of that the fact that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. As a matter of fact, instead of paraphrasing it, let me just go ahead and read it to you. Begin verse 1 just to get a head start. 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brother, and I declared to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you've believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look at this brief little passage. Lord, again, we, we want to remember, we want to celebrate, but more importantly, Lord, we want to open up our hearts to you and to receive whatever it is that you might have for us this morning as we have gathered together to celebrate the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, our living hope. And so, Lord, we, we thank you again for what you've done for us. And we pray, Lord, fill us with your spirit that we might receive that which you have for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. The Apostles' Creed that we recited earlier talks about how Jesus was crucified, he was dead, and he was buried, and then three days later he rises from the dead. And, and this is that incredible good news. We, we call it the gospel, which is, if you're in church, it, it's, it, um, it's very common. Right? It's very common in church. Um, you go out on the street and you say, I want to share the gospel with you. They may look at you like you just grew a second head. Right? Uh, and, and so these terms um, are not always familiar with those who are not well acquainted with the household faith. But Paul, he declares the good news. He declares the gospel which he preached to us. Uh, and First, notice the first thing that he, he starts off with. It, this is a very long chapter, and so I would, I would encourage you uh, to read it later because it goes in and starts talking about not only Jesus dying, being buried, and then resurrecting, but he also then starts talking about our resurrection. The thing about the resurrection, which, which, which I love, it, 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 it really becomes the, the sign, the symbol the act of God, the Father, that Jesus Christ, God the Son, 
his sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to each, to him, for each and every one of us. Peter tells us in the book of Acts that it was impossible for the grave to hold him. It was impossible. Now, perhaps that's a little bit of an assurance. Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, knew exactly what was going to happen based on his foreknowledge of his suffering on the cross, but also confident in the resurrection. But it did not make the cross any lighter. It did not make the whip hurt less. It did not cause the crown of thorns to penetrate less. It did not cause the embarrassment of being fully exposed and mocked and ridiculed any less. The the nails that were driven into his flesh did not hurt any less because he's God. How that all works out is above my pay grade. All right? Some things are. I know that might come as a shock to a few of you. Others, you learned that a long time ago, right? But nonetheless, Jesus comes and he dies a physical death. Tells us that he dies for our sins according to the scriptures. That he, in fact, actually did die. It wasn't, and some of the theories that I, they just, I don't understand why, why people come up with these things at times. But some of the theories that, that, it's called the swoon theory, I'm sure you've heard it, where he didn't really die on the cross, he just fainted. Now think about how stupid that is, Okay. We can talk real here, right? Now, you go through what Jesus went through, and you tell me that you're not, go- you know, you're not going to die. That is, it just doesn't make any sense. He dies for our sins. He dies on behalf of our sins. It really refers, this phrase, uh, he, dying for our sins, in verse 3. It's really referring to this atonement where our sins are being washed away and that uh, our sins are being cast as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. But it took an incredible act of Jesus on the cross for that to happen. He dies for our sins. Notice it says according to the scriptures. I, it would have made it easier if Paul would have footnoted this passage, wouldn't have it? I remember having to do footnotes when I was when still in seminary. Anyway, doing footnotes and making sure they're in the, they're in the right space and they're the right font and they're the right size and that you've got to indent the right. It drives me crazy. Um, but I wish you would have footnoted this. But he dies according to the scriptures. What scriptures? What scriptures? Of course, when Paul is writing this, what scriptures is he referring to? 
probably just referring to the Old Testament. But if you read Psalm 22, which we will not take the time to look at this morning, Psalm 22 is all about the crucifixion. It's all about Jesus dying on the cross and, and this prophecy that is given for us for people who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Another passage and that I will just probably pull a, a couple of verses out of is the back half of Isaiah chapter 52 and the entirety of Isaiah chapter 53, which gives this uh, this uh, incredible description of Jesus on the cross. It, it, it talks about him being chastised for our peace and by his stripes that we have been healed, verses 5 uh, of Isaiah 53. And how he was oppressed and how he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth, verse 7, and he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. For he was cut off from the land of the living, verse 8. And for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich man at his death. Because he had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. It's, it's this prophetic description of parts of the crucifixion narrative. It's so accurate that there are those critics who believe that Isaiah 53 was inserted. It was inserted after uh, the time of Christ by somebody in the church. He just kind of snuck it in there. The problem with that theory is they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written prior to the time of Jesus, which includes, guess what, Isaiah 53. It wasn't inserted. But nonetheless, it was given to us according to the scriptures. Now, that fascinates me because, because the, the Corinthian church was a mix of Jew and Gentiles, but it was in a Gentile city. It was in a Gentile city, and, and most Jews who were dispersed, they, in their, in their uh, learning of the scriptures, they spent most of their time in Torah, first five books of the Bible. But Paul tells them, he, 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 and I think what he's doing is he's undergirding the idea uh, of, of out of the nation of Israel that was God's chosen natural, nat nation, excuse me, God's chosen nation comes the light of the world that Isaiah prophesied about as well. And now, the people of God, at least how I read the Bible, the people of God are now whosoever will. And the offer, you see, I read parts of Revelation yesterday just to kind of tune my heart for some of this this morning. And, and, and that offer of God to whoever will, whoever will, and, the, and the, the lamb says come, and the bride says come, and that invitation to come to Jesus but he dies for our sins. Hebrews chapter 2. Um, I think it's around verse 14. It's, it's worth me reading to you instead of misquoting it. 
But Hebrews chapter 2 talks about this as well. And I just went into a major panic because I turned to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, and I didn't realize it. Sorry about that. I'm back. Okay. Um, Hebrews chapter 2 is, is talking about the superiority of Jesus. And it says, Insomuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Jesus, likewise shared in the same. It's talking about the incarnation. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. You see, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus really do go hand in hand. Because it's the death of Jesus where the work on the cross is where Jesus got the victory over the devil, where Jesus got victory over sin, where Jesus got victory over death. And the resurrection, aside from what Peter tells us in the book of Acts, that the, it was impossible for the grave to hold him, the resurrection vindicates Jesus who was despised, who was rejected, and it declares his power that he is the Son of God, he is God the Son. And it also publicly confirms his death as effective for the forgiveness of sins. It publicly confirms his death as effective for the forgiveness of sins. Do you ever feel that maybe you're not forgiven? I guess it was just me. All right. Um, barking up the wrong tree this morning. Of course you do. I think we wrestle with these things from time to time. But one of the things I begin, I'm beginning to think through when I encounter those times is that I have a Savior who not only died to do away and to conquer the power of sin and of death and of the devil, but he affirms his victory through the resurrection. Notice verse 5 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that he was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part of the present uh, remain uh, to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now, I sure hope that somebody got that on video. You know, I'm, I'm not much of a video watcher. I'm really, I'm really, I mean, if you do, you do. You do, you do your thing, right? I'd rather read, but that's just me. Um, but I think in, in heaven, if all these scenes in the Bible are on video, I'm going to be living in the theater, man. 
I am. I'm going to be there just to, to watch it and be able to see these things unfold. But to be in a place where Jesus, the risen Savior, is revealed to over 500 people at once, that's a pretty, pretty compelling testimony. Not to mention 11, if you count Matthias, not Judas, 11 out of the 12 disciples, the apostles, died martyrs' deaths. I think if it was a big joke or a big hoax, they would have recanted to save their skin. Who would be dumb enough to die for a lie? I guess I should retract that question because probably people do it all the time, don't they? But I'll let, I'll let that one go right downstream. The resurrection publicly confirms that his death is effective for the forgiveness of each and every one of your sins. The big ones, the small ones, the medium ones, the ones that you did on the way to church this morning, the ones that you will do in the parking lot before you get out of here this morning. You, you get the idea. We're forgiven people. Where sin abounds, Paul says, grace abounds even more. Grace abounds even more. That thing in your life that you've done that you cannot forgive yourself of, maybe, hopefully you, there you don't have those things, but most people I know have at least 10 or more, all right? A couple of dozen, maybe, I don't know. Those things in your life that you've done that you have trouble forgiving yourself over, God has forgiven you of it. And it's been cast as far as the east is from the west. And he doesn't remember it. So let me give you a hint. When you get to heaven, don't remind him. All right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. All right? But seriously, he, he, he's forgotten about those things. The psalmist talks about how, how he recognizes that we are, we, are, we are just as vapor. We are but dust. Because of our fallen natures, what you and I do most naturally is sin. That's really, I, I really believe that's who we are as people. And yet we are forgiven. And you who are born again of the Spirit, have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you going, <clears throat> excuse me? And really in that regard, what a safeguard it is. I, how many times has the voice of the Holy Spirit kept you from doing something incredibly, incredibly stupid? Think about that. Not even worrying about the things that you do that you shouldn't, but how many times has the Holy Spirit interceded on your behalf for you, getting you to not make a decision to do something that you will later regret? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He truly died. 
it, it's given to us in, in what's called the aorist tense in the Greek. Um, the aorist tense is often translated past tense. Most of you guys know this. Often translated past tense in the English because the Greek has no past tense. But it's actually giving us a snapshot. He died. This is a definitive action. It wasn't just some type of theory. And he died on our behalf according to the scriptures. And then it says he was buried. This is kind of the bridge between the dying and the resurrection. There's no modifier, right? It didn't say he was buried according to the scriptures. It said he died according to the scriptures. He resurrects according to the scriptures. He's buried, essentially, in the tomb. And from the tomb, he rises from the dead. Now, the way I understand it, and there are different views on this, because we're all going to die. At least that's what the scripture tells us. Which as I'm getting older, I'm, not, I'm becoming less comfortable with that idea. But it's also inevitable. So maybe I need to become more comfortable. And just trust God with it. We're all going to die. And whether you are put in, a, in the ground, in a tomb, whether you're cremated, God's going to rise you from the dead on the last day. You're going to rise on the last day, the third day emblematic of the last day as well. Because not only was he buried, but he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, I've, I've, I've read a lot of discussion about what the third day actually means. And of course, that leads into more discussions and writings and studies about when the crucifixion actually took place. And I, I probably have read more about it than I probably needed to. But after reading about it, in the Hebrew mindset, this is important, part of a day qualifies for the entire day. All right, it does. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Your mileage may vary. I guess I'm done there, all right? Definitely he rises on the first day of the week. Which, if you read in the book of Exodus and also in Leviticus chapter 23, there's not, that, which really fascinates me because there's not a whole lot said about it in Torah, but in Leviticus chapter 23, it talks about the feast that is tucked into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as the Feast of First Fruit which was on the day after the Sabbath of the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Do you follow me on that? Okay, Sabbath being what? Don't say Sunday. Saturday. Remember, they're Jewish, all right? So on the Sunday, there was the Feast of First Fruits. It wasn't, which, which is interesting to me because it wasn't nearly as observed by the Jews as the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was, and the day before that, which was what? Passover, okay? 
But there's the feast of first fruits. Jesus being the first fruits, it tells us, among many brethren. But it fascinates me that aside from some of the disciples, the apostles, a few others, he doesn't make a huge fanfare of it. He didn't go back up on the Mount of Olives and walk back down like he did the triumphal entry that we talked about last Sunday. He appears to Mary. He appears to some of the other women. Eventually appears to Peter. He appears to the ten, and there may have been others in the room. Later on appears to Philip, or excuse me, Thomas, who... I don't know, who knows what he was doing, but he wasn't, he wasn't with the rest of the group and he didn't get to see the first resurrection or the first appearance to the, to the disciples. He appears to Cleopas uh, on the uh, road to Emmaus. But he didn't appear to too many people. See, that fascinates me, but it also speaks of, of, of something that I think we have a hard time grabbing a hold of, uh, and that is the humility of God. Because we were conditioned, especially if you're older, so some of you younger folks, this is kind of like a history lesson for you, okay? Uh, there was a store called Sears Roebuck, right? All right, and in the Sears catalog, okay, catalog is this big book, all right? <laughs> That they, they, they're trying to sell you all this stuff, right? All right? There was no internet in these days. You had to do something, all right? I don't know how we survived without cell phones. And, anyway. But in the Sears catalog, it was bit, uh, good, better, best. Remember that? Some of you are nodding your head just a bit too much for me this morning, but that's okay. I'm kidding. Um, good, better, best. See, we think in those terms. We think of, well, I want best. Forget about the good. Better if I have to, but I want, I'm going for the best. I want to go for the bigger bang. Jesus says to us in, in Luke chapter 9, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's the opposite of big, be- or good, better, best the complete opposite of that. That's why when, when I'm sharing the gospel, when I'm sharing the good news with people, when I'm telling people about Jesus, I don't worry about convincing them. I don't. Because I know that the Holy Spirit is a whole lot better at doing it than I ever can. I just put it out there and let the Holy Spirit work with it. And, and trust that he wants to do that work. He, he, w- he was buried, and then he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, I had a sheet. I had a full sheet that I left at home of Scriptures that talk about the resurrection in the Old Testament. But even beginning with Genesis chapter 3, where... God prophesies, and, and he, he, he tells the serpent that, that the seed of the woman, notice it's singular, seed of the woman. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't, but I'm not going to go down there this morning. 
the seed of the woman will be in conflict with the serpent and the seed of the woman will have his heel bruised, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, which is a death blow. And if you follow the seed uh, all the way, particularly through the Old Testament, you see pictures of Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman. We have this, this, this idea where Jesus rose from the dead. In the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, Right around verse 44. It says he said to them, he's talking to Cleopas and probably his wife, but we don't know for sure who the other person was. It says, these are the words which I have spoken to you, which I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses. That's Torah, first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch. The prophets, okay, that's all the prophetic writings, and the Psalms, or it could also be translated the writings, the main components of Old Testament scripture, law, prophets, and writings, which Jesus refers to as the Psalms. It is the Psalms, but it's also the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Lamentations. I know some of you are really enjoying Ecclesiastes on Wednesday night, um, and all the other wisdom literature. And, and Jesus says that these things were written in all, the, all these passages concerning himself. I'm not going to go tracing down old, we're almost out of time. So I'm not going to go tracing down a bunch of Old Testament passages that would refer to this. But it's given to us according to the scriptures. God left himself a witness prior to the time of Jesus ever coming to this earth in the flesh what he's meant, the point that he's trying to make. Among other things, the sign of Jonah. Jesus talked about this in the book of Matthew where the sign of Jonah where just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish or the sea monster or the whale, whatever you want to call it, depending on your translation, for three days and three nights. And so it will be that the son of man will be in the heart of the earth for three days, three nights. Okay, so... Um, It's given to us in Scripture. And even more so, this idea, one more thing, I'm going to be done. His body saw no corruption. Peter talks about this in Acts chapter 2, verse 27, and in Acts chapter 2, verse 31. Later on, it's also recorded for us in Acts chapter 13, 35 through 37. The body of Jesus saw no corruption while he was in the tomb. Now, I, don't, I can't figure this out, but it's, but, it, but it's true. Now, remember, not too long prior to the crucifixion, who did Jesus raise from the dead? Lazarus, right? Okay? So, and Lazarus had been dead for 
four days. And Martha, if you go to the old King James, some of you are already laughing because you know where I'm going. Martha says to Jesus, you can't do that. He, he, I hate this, but he stinketh, all right? <laughs> That's what he said. I'm like, oh, great, okay. But uh, uh, now I'm embarrassed. But anyway, um, because in the Middle East, because it's so warm, corruption happens very quickly, very quickly. David prophesying about this in Psalm chapter 16 where it says that, that, that his body would see no corruption. And, and Peter takes that psalm and says, yes, David is still here buried and in his tomb today, but he was not talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus, Peter tells us. Because corruption does not only mean the degrading of the flesh, but corruption really refers to this idea of a body that has not resurrected. That's really the context that, that Peter brings out here in the book of Acts. Could, can you imagine if Jesus' body had rotted and then he resurrected? Would that make any sense? No, absolutely no sense. When he resurrected, other than having some supernatural, which to him are very natural, but having some supernatural attributes, did he still not have the scars in his hands? Yes, he did. Did he still not have the scar on his side? Yes, he did. So he had this supernatural type of natural body that never saw corruption. And because of that, he was seen by Peter. He was seen by the 12. The 12, by the way, is a generic term for the apostles. And then he's seen by over 500 at once. And I saw him this morning. Not with my eyes, not with these eyes anyway, but with my spiritual eyes. I hope you saw him this morning with your spiritual eyes. Because he has been seen by his people, the church of God, for about 2,000 years. He desires to continue to reveal himself. He desires to continue to show himself. That's what I love about so many of these, these things that the early church grabbed a hold of, that not only is every Sunday like a resurrection day, but every sunrise. Every sunrise is a picture of the resurrection, of the sun coming up. Now, every so often, I actually go out and watch one. I play, I, I'm a musician. We don't get up early, all right? We don't, but, but it, you know, either that or, and I had somebody who thought they were going to be really cute and text me pictures of the sunrise, which I really appreciated it for something in the morning. But anyway, um, that's just another picture of the promise that because he resurrected from the dead, one day, you and I, will resurrect from the dead as well. And you're going to recognize me in heaven because I'm going to have dreadlocks down past my waist, you know, <laughs> and the nicer beard. Anyway, but I'm looking forward to that. God demonstrated his love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And to put 
the icing on the cake. He resurrects from the dead. Signifying one day we will be the same. Amen.